and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us again for another episode of the Good Trouble Podcast. My name is Gregory Ball. I'm the director of Embrace Ideas for King Boston, and my my uh, I was going to say my sidekick, but that doesn't that doesn't seem correct. My cohort, uh, my compadre, my friend, my comrade—that is the word I'm looking for. My comrade in arms, Reggie Williams. Reggie, how are you feeling today? Glad to be a co-conspirator in the movement, Greg, and it's great to be here with you. Uh, and we're very excited to have two guests uh, today. Uh, so we want to introduce first Emily Ruddick from Mass Creative. Emily, how are you? I'm well. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for joining us. And also we have Michael J. Bobbitt from the Mass Cultural Council. Hi, friends. Thanks for having me. Thank you both so much for joining us today. So we'd love to introduce the listeners for the podcast to both of your organizations before diving into arts, advocacy, the American Rescue Plan, and all the other things going on in society. Um, Emily, we'll start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about Mass Creative? Sure. So Mass Creative is a statewide arts and cultural advocacy organization. Um, we were founded in 2012, and really, we want to do three things. We want to um, make sure that there are good pro-arts policies that our legislators are considering that are going to make it so that everyone in Massachusetts can benefit from the from arts and culture across the state. Then the second thing we want to do is we want to make sure that people know all about the benefits that arts and culture bring to residents in the state. And then finally, um, and this is probably where we're, we've been leaning in the most recently, is it's about making sure that art supporters and cultural advocates have the tools and the knowledge and the resource to be effective and confident when they're engaging elected officials, whether it's on the local, state, or federal level, to ask for the things that they need um, and to de sort of demystify the process, right? So we can um, make sure that there are a lot of people talking about the importance of arts and culture um, and that we have more champions um, in our elected officials who are considering the things that we need and are, are moving them forward. That's great, Emily. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and Michael, we'd love to just hear a little bit about Mass Cultural Council. Sure. So um, Emily and Mass Creative are partners of ours, and so much of what Emily said uh, is reflected in the work that we do. But we are the state agency that promotes excellence, inclusion, and education, and diversity in the arts, humanities, and sciences. And we foster a rich cultural life for all Massachusetts residents and contribute to the vitality of our community and the economy. We pursue most of our work through a wide range of grants, initiatives, and advocacy for artists, communities, organizations, and schools. So basically, we support the cultural sector with a lot of grants and services to make sure they are operating well, presenting and producing programs for our residents, and also uh, working with Emily to advocate for whatever we need to elevate the arts, the arts and cultural sector in the, in the Commonwealth. I was going to say the state, but I keep rem reminding myself that it's a Commonwealth. I'm still new to the area, so I'm, I'm learning. That's very much. Thank you. Um, and, you know, we're hoping to make wealth more common in the Commonwealth, particularly, you know, in the arts and the culture sectors, and then also for small businesses and creative entrepreneurs who have taken a large hit during the pandemic. I'm curious, uh, and this question is to the both of you, uh, what, what would you say is the current state of the arts and culture sector here in the Commonwealth? How are things? Um, you know, we're getting a lot of new types of support at the state and the federal level. Uh, just curious to hear your thoughts on where things stand today. 
I, I think we're in crisis still, you know, we, uh, it's, we were the first to close and the last to open. And so already most of these organizations are nonprofits who struggle because they're nonprofits and rely heavily on, um, contributed revenue and the consumption of arts and culture through ticket sales and classes and workshops and events. When all those are shut down, then you're in crisis. And so we, the last time we surveyed the field was, was in March and the results were that $588 million in losses were suffered from organizations and from individuals. It was more than $30 million. And that was just the people that filled out the survey. It didn't include the other parts of the sector that considered themselves for profit. So we know that that hit is, is even deeper than, than, than we, our, our survey showed. Uh, I feel for our artists having been an artist for many, many years, who, who struggled every year to pull together enough income just to survive. And so when all that goes away and you have to start thinking about doing other things to make a living, not only do your, does your pocket suffer, but your soul suffers because you can't do the thing that you want to do. So I think we're in crisis and what we're Emily and I are trying to do almost every, every day. I can't even say almost every day, but every single day is advocate to get some relief funding and start getting arts organizations to use what we've learned during this crisis, not only the crisis of COVID, but the crisis of the racial reckoning to sort of fix some things that maybe have not been fixed in our sector for a while. So it's an exciting time, a very busy time, um, and somewhat of a scary time because we cannot lose our arts and culture sector. Everything in the state will suffer if the arts and culture sector starts dying out. Um, just to thank, thank you, Michael, Michael and the mass cultural council has done such a phenomenal job of, um, working with arts and cultural organizations and individuals across this last year to help us get the data that we need to really make our case. And so, um, the, the numbers that Michael shared are, are absolutely, I think, tell the economic story, the other piece and Reggie, you mentioned this, which is, you know, I think there's been a lot of talk about the federal relief that's out there. Right. So, you know, um, we were certainly very delighted when Congress included in um, the CARES Act, which, which happened earlier last summer, um, the Shuttered Venue Operator Grant Program, right, which was supposed to bring relief to independent live venues, that's both nonprofit and, and for-profit, to presenters and, and sort of the entire live venue or live event ecosystem. And while a lot of money has gone out, and I think right now it's about a, a hundred I think a hundred million has made its way to Massachusetts. I think that I, I will double check that, but um, already, and that's just a, a fraction of what has been released overall in a billion, you know, multi-billion dollar program. We also know from talking with our members that those shuttered venue operator grants basically <laughs> went to fill an, a deficit, right? Um, we also know that, you know, the uh, governor Baker included in, in some of his care spending um, $10 million, which the mass cultural council distributed last January, January to help with arts and cultural organizations that had been impacted by COVID. And so that was $10 million. The, the, the council received $30 million in requests, right? And we know that people are self-selecting out of even applying for that because they think, oh, we're not eligible, right? So the, the, the need and the loss is really great. And I think that that's one of the things that we're trying to help um, decision makers kind of wrap their head, their arms around, which is yes, there are dollars going out, but those are literally just sort of paying the bills that have been 
you know, backdated and pushed back for a really long time. And that's not even about addressing what's going to come next. How do we rehire people? How do we think about, and this is one of the things that I love about Michael and the conversations that we have with the council. How do we think about what the future for arts and culture is going to look like? Right. So, um, you know, we're all thinking right now about the Delta variant and the, um, and the other variants that are coming out. And that has real implications to an industry that relies on bringing people together. And so what does it look like if, you know, how do we think about pivoting into hybrid service delivery, right? How do we think about, you know, a lot of people really did enjoy and took in and consumed different art forms virtually. Um, but that kind of infrastructure is not something that every arts organization has right now. And if we're thinking about reopening better and in a way that's about equity, how do we think about those considerations too? The other thing I would say, Reggie and Greg, is that when I talk about like the impact on the whole Commonwealth, most people are like, what are you talking about? Like, do, do we need theater? Do we need dance? But the thing is, is that well, one, we need it for our souls. Most of us got through COVID with, you know, Netflix and books and podcasts and digital work. Uh, we would not have survived if we didn't have arts and culture. But if you think about it, when you go to consume arts and culture, you might get your hair done, your nails done, you might get a new outfit. And so those people that are running the nail salons and the hair salons and selling clothes are benefiting from it. You might drive or use public transportation or park. So the people that make money from those industries are benefiting from it. You probably are going to get a meal with your friends. So like all the people that work for the restaurants, including the wait staff are all benefiting from arts consumption. And so that's what we mean by the whole economy is, is benefiting from it. So there's the secondary secondary spending impact of consumption, but then there's also the money that goes into the GDP that comes from all the people that are employed in arts and culture organization and the income taxes they're paying both to the state and the feds. If I'm not mistaken, it was $2.3 billion we put into the GDP the year before COVID. And nationally, it was $919 billion, which is bigger than agriculture and construction and education. So we can't function as a society without arts and culture. Michael, I think you hit on something that, that's always fascinated me in the conversations around the arts and culture. And, and I think Emily kind of touched on it as well. There's this division between when, when people think of arts and culture, they think of museums, they think of nonprofits. And when the reality is there's also the, the world of entertainment. So when, you know, when Emily was talking about the venues that we're, we're getting taken care of, what is it that we can do to get people to kind of have a holistic view of the world of the arts? Because I think that there, there's something, there's a disconnect with people. I think there's, everybody views the arts almost as something that is a, a, a luxury or is a, is a cool thing to tag on. It's okay if you, if you have it, but I know for me, you, you spoke to it. The, the need for the arts actually got me through. It was those nights. It was, and it was a variety of different ways. It was D nice DJing on Instagram. It was the versus battles. It was, it was going down on a couple of days when I was just feeling down and looking at some of the, the public murals that, that pro black has done. So when you put all those things together, what, what is it that we can get to get, what is it that we can do um, to elevate and get people to really understand the impact of the arts? Yeah. There's a bunch of things I can say. One is Rihanna became a billionaire because of how much we spent on her <laughs> and she's an artist. And so some, sometimes we separate the nonprofit 
or high art from the entertainment. To me, it's all part of the same industry. We need to embrace that. I also personally, like I am obsessed with making sure every single arts organization is uplifted and artists. Cause I was saved because of arts and culture. I grew up a poor black kid from lower Northwest DC. And if it wasn't for arts and culture, I wouldn't be where I am now. So I'm trying to find ways to give back. Um, the other part I like to tell people is that the world revolves because of creative thinking. And there's so much research out there that says we're, at, we're on the dawn of the creative age. I don't know if it's the dawn. I think we're somewhere midday in the creative age. What, what they mean by that is that the world's problems will be solved through creativity. We've already gone through the industrial age, the technological age, the information age, and we can't solve our problems with that stuff now. We need people to be creative, to, have, to, to see the world differently. I tell people all the time that imagination is seeing the world different. Creativity is bringing imagination to life. Art, science, and technology is the product of creativity. And so if we want the world to advance, if we want to solve climate, we want to solve racism, we've got to have creative people in the room all the time. And that's what's going to happen. So there's the feel-good aspect, there's the healing aspect, there's the financial aspect, and there's the progress aspect. And sometimes the arts industry gets sort of uh, pushed to the side because people think of it as entertainment and fluff and not necessary. I defy anyone to think about a day in their lives where art is not a big part of what they do. I can't think of a moment where there's not art around me. Yeah, go ahead, jump in, feel free. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's always hard to go after Michael. Um, you know, I think there's also, there's like a, that question about like, why don't we value arts in America? Right. Is, um, there's a lot of different answers to we've ripped it out of our, our public education. So we're not in, we're not, we're not sort of embedding of uh, understanding and, uh, um, frankly, our own, our own creativity and artistry, right. From an early age. Like, I don't know, there's a great little anecdote that if you go into a class of kindergartners and you ask who's an artist, they'll all raise their hands. And by the time you get to about middle school, very few will. And, um, you know, as in similarly, how many of us have enjoyed a, a game of pickup basketball or, you know, go for a run and we don't plan on going pro, but you know, we do it. And yet, you know, I heard, I heard somebody just the other day say like, I'm not an artist. I couldn't draw a straight line with a ruler. And it's like, why have we opted out of that? So there's that part of the conversation. I think there's also like a policy answer to that too, which is, you know, and one of the things that we found, um, over the course of the last year and a half is that, um, we're, we're all adjusting and our policies and our, our government, how our, our, our resources and how, and, and our safety nets are set up to treat nonprofit and for-profit entities very differently. And so, you know, uh, we, we talked with a number of different for-profit independent live venues who are not, they're not the big ones. They're sort of like the mom and pop places where like, frankly, people get their start, right? Like they're part of that ecosystem. That's so important. And they were reaching out to say like, I'm about to go under, like who can help me? And they, they kept getting um, directed towards um, the the parts of either local or state government, including the Mass Cultural Council, to say like, oh, they're going to take care of you, but there aren't grant programs for the most part that are stood up for not for for profit arts efforts, right? And then if you go to the other side, right? 
if you go to the Mass um, Growth Capital Corporation, which is a, a major, it's a quasi, it's a driver of where a lot of um, state dollars are invested for small businesses. They had a whole program that was dedicated to helping small businesses during the pandemic, but they wouldn't let any of the nonprofits apply. So there are these sort of like these, these, um, you know, I think policy imaginary walls that people are running into um, and make it hard for uh, for folks to navigate. And so I think one of the things that we need to take a look at is how do we make it easier for um, for folks in the arts and cultural community, however you want to define yourself, to find your resource and to, and to find the support that you need. And, and from our perspective at Mass Creative, what are the policy pieces that we need to be advocating to make sure that that's possible? You know, when I when I was thinking about what you know Michael said about the whole idea of the the art saving him, I thought about that as well for myself. And I, and I, when I think of that, I think about the effect the arts has had in terms of the connections and the friendships that I quite honestly I would not have had. Because, but it started because you know myself and another person liked the same song, and that was that common ground where we recognize each other's humanity and like, oh, you kind of like that, I like that too. And it, it's the arts have this uh this this path that kind of takes you around but it's not it's not the direct easy like hey you sit in this class you learn math you can go here and you can become a mathematician it so i think that's part of the part that just makes it so difficult and i i often wonder just like how can we get people to understand that it's in their lives already there in some cases that you know they may not be calling it that you know they may not be calling it the arts take it away for a day and see how people feel yeah. Yeah. I mean, Matt. I think it's, oh, I was also going to say, like, I think that, and this is where perhaps I will get into trouble with my own industry. Um, I think this is where we as a sector have to face sort of a, a, a history of, of inequity and exclusion. So, you know, I think that that, that piece about um, who feels represented in our, our, our creative spaces, who feels welcomed in our creative spaces. And, and I know that arts and cultural organizations across Massachusetts are really taking a hard look at that, but you know, there, there are, um, we're dealing with decades of, of, of groups feeling underserved, um, and excluded from, I think, so, you know, from our, from our sector. And not only that, but art forms that are coming out of communities. And, and right now I just think about all the work that BAMS Fest has done to really lift up black and brown artists and creative entrepreneurs. But, but that space to say like, what do we do? What do we declare is art? What do we say is creativity? And we're in a moment right now where, where those boundaries are widening. And I think we're really pushing to make sure that, um, all cultures are celebrated, right? Like that's our job to make sure that um, the creativity and the specific community art is recognized as that, as opposed to, oh, that's, that's vandalism, right? Which was a big you know, part of the nineties and the, and the aughts, the early aughts of like, that's not art, that's vandalism. And we've moved, but there's more work to do. And I think that that's also part of how we change how people think about their relationship to art and culture is we make sure they feel like they are engaging in art culture. Yeah. Just to elaborate on what I said earlier, if you take art away for a day, you will see what the suffering feels like. And then people will understand the value of it. It's the same thing I say about the contributions of people of color to this culture. Take away everything we have contributed to this culture. 
the fashion, the food, the the architecture, and see how we feel about living in an or living in a in a country that's homogenous. I don't think we'll like it a lot, and then we'll see the value of it. So weird, strange. Um, M night Shyamalan experiment, but I think that <laughs> I think there's something to that. So it's there, it's there in every single aspect of what you do. So in, in both of your roles, I know that, you know, we're, we're, as we're coming out of the pandemic, we saw the, the effect that it had on the industry, but we also saw the effect it had on our, our souls as we were kind of really, really confronted with a lot of the racial inequity conversations that were popping up. In your both of your roles, what do you feel like you're able to do to kind of drive um, that conversation forward into a positive way? I think, um, you know, I think early on um, in the the arrival of the pandemic to Boston, to Massachusetts, excuse me. Um, we had to take a hard look at what were the policy recommendations we were going to put forward and who's going to benefit from those policy recommendations. And so, you know, as mass creatives role is to develop policy, that's going to make it possible so that everyone can engage and everyone can benefit from arts and culture, but it's all. And then the other thing I said about, um, the tools and the resources to be confident in that advocacy, but it's really taking a look at what what are we putting forward? Um, who will benefit? Which communities will benefit? Is this through a, an intersectional policy lens? How are we thinking about the disability community? I mean, for me, I think the biggest eye opener it was when someone said to me, you realize that all of this Zoom um, work, remote work and Zoom remote learning is something that the disability community has been begging for for years, but told that it wasn't possible and it would cost too much money. And yet, it was seemed to be set up for the entire nation in a matter of weeks, right? And so I think that really digging in and and um, and addressing those issues and those interconnected points when we're talking about arts and cultural policy is one of them. I think also too, um, you know. Our, our work is about elevating and making visible. So who are, who are the folks that we reach out to, to say, will you come and talk with a legislator with me about this issue? Or, um, who's, who are we quoting in our press releases? Like all of this makes for what is, what is a, what is our definition of our arts and cultural community? So those are some of the ways that we look at it. I mean, I'm, you know, the privilege and the power of being a funder is tremendous. And I, and I carry all the weight of that every single day. Um, but, but people listen to funders because they need and want that money. And so I, uh, and I'm excited about that. Um, so a couple of things, one is I, I can have conversations with legislators about how do we use the money to make sure that we are distributing it equitably to support those people that need it the most. Um, so we are bridging the gap between the marginalized and the privilege. The thing I can do is just look at all of our grant making practices throw away best practices that come from the long standing supremacy models of fund of funding and redesign those. I can also make sure that everything we're doing internally is uplifting racial equity. We're about to launch our racial equity plan. Hopefully I can get it out within a month or two. Um, but I'm excited about what we're doing both internally to make sure that everything we're doing inside is reflecting kind of what we want other um, organization in the cultural sector to do, but also making sure we are setting guidelines to help organizations become more equitable 
and then supporting their efforts with training and workshops and maybe even diagnostic exams so they can sort of see where they are in their cultural equity um, work. Um, but that's all the stuff I can do as a funder. And what I'm hoping, um, based on some response we got to the racial equity plan, some people are saying this is a pioneering effort. So I'm hoping that the work we do in Massachusetts will spread out through the rest of the country. And and, and, and if that happens, then we'll not only to the other state arts agencies, but maybe it'll happen to private philanthropy as well, because they even have more money than, than, than we have at, at the state level. It's funny, as you mentioned, Rihanna, and, you know, the, the creation of a new billionaire, you know, and we talk about wealth and philanthropy. I'm curious how, as we're looking at the resilience of the cultural sector and we're looking at, you know, state budgets and federal budgets and how all these dollars are really funneling into and driving community development and driving folks forward, how can we also bring folks along on the journey of creating that shared language and that shared understanding when folks have been excluded historically and systemically from the conversation. Uh, any thoughts on how we can get more folks involved in that effort of being not, maybe not on the front lines of advocacy, if that's not where they particularly feel compelled to be, but how to get more involved in the debate and helping to shape it. I mean, Emily can, can speak yeah. to this, but, but I will say just coming from a black family where a lot of people don't vote, it is important that we show up at the public square. We have to show up. We have to take the time to vote and write our legislators because others are doing it. And if we don't show up as a, as a, as a nation of BIPOC people, the things that we want to get done won't happen. And I know that historically we have shown up and still things didn't change, but right now we're on the precipice of this big change. And I just need everyone's voices to be part of the advocating that we're doing. You know, what I learned here is that in this state, if a legislator gets, is it four or five emails? Like five. Yeah. They have to elevate that cause to another level. So we need to make sure and, and, and other communities are maybe stronger at, um, at, uh, you know, I know I can be really good at popping off, um, but we need people to pop off and to organize, right? Cause other communities might be stronger at organizing and getting things done. And that's, that's kind of, as I look into the camera, at the, at the, at the, at the podcast folk out there, I need you to show up at the public square. Remember back in the day when, when towns were built in the center of town was, you know, the church, the state house and the performing arts center. And so those conversations about arts and culture and public policy were all intermingled. So people have to show up at the public square metaphorically. It sounds like five is the magic number. It might be the beginning of that campaign. <laughs> yeah, for us to start getting people yeah. to really connect. Because you know, for for us at King Boston, one of the things that we're really um, invested in is really lifting up and, and being um, um, counter storytellers and really pushing back against some of the the what you've seen in terms of. Um, racial inequity. We know that one of the ways that you can fight that is by lifting up those um, left, lifting up those voices that have been traditionally kind of left out in in the in the cold. Um, what I would love to hear from you guys are, are some of the things that you are that some of the pieces um, in in the platform that you're that we're that you're both working with that kind of lean towards that, like really lifting up those voices. I know that I know with create the vote um, that is an inter integral part of of really kind of lifting up um, voices that have not been in, in the fold before. 
Yeah, thanks. I So Create the Vote Boston is an effort that Mass Creative is supporting, and it's made up of arts and cultural organizations, artists, and creative leaders in Boston who really want to see um, the candidates who are running for mayor talk about the arts and culture, right? And, and part of that is also raising our visibility and our profile to say, if you care about making sure that every kid in every school in Boston has an arts class option who, you know, then you need to show up and, and engage in, in this election. Right. And, um, and I think that that, but that's not just about the election. And I think that, that it's about how do we, how do we help and support each other? Um, cause this work doesn't happen overnight and it's not easy work and it takes a lot of energy. So how do we support each other to, um, unite in moments where we really need to band together to apply political pressure? Right. So if, you know, how are we, how are we standing shoulder to shoulder and saying like, this is an issue that the current mayor of Boston really has to address and needs, needs to hear from the arts community about. Um, and I think through Create the Vote Boston, one of the things that we very much intentionally tried to do is make sure that we have steering committee members and coalition members who represent and come from every neighborhood in Boston, um, across arts disciplines, um, across serving various communities, and really looking at um, creating a, a policy platform that identifies and says there are there are inequities baked into the way that the city of Boston government does business that inhibits our creativity. And so for one example of those is that's in the platform is this, this issue about permitting and licensing, right? Which on some level, like that's not an arts issue. Oh, but it is right. Who gets a liquor license, right? Who, in what neighborhood does that happen? Who gets the permit to use the park for their dance pro program? Um, how many cops are they required to have at their event? What do they need to do in order to get those cops to show up, right? Like all of those pieces um, change who is able to actually make art in the city of Boston. And so that's one of the issues that we're bringing up. So it's, it's, it's not just like we need more money, right? Which we do, right? We know that Boston lags really far behind when we're talking about city investment in its arts and cultural community as compared to Chicago, San Francisco, New York, et cetera. But, but this idea about like, there are policies that are stopping people from being creative in Boston and that we need to address those. And we need the next mayor of Boston to be thinking about those too. I can talk conceptually about sort of what we're doing. And then I'll tell you some of the examples of what I hope we can, we can pull out. But I think about how decisions are made and how policies and rules and practices and best practices come out. If you think about policy, it should exist on a bell curve, ideally, where, where the policy is trying to take care of most of the people. We know because of supremacy, policies kind of exist like this where because the policymakers are homogenous, they're taking care of people that look like them. They don't have the perspective to take care of most of the people. And on the end of the bell curve, we know someone's going to get screwed. So if we have a homogenous body make, uh, decision making um, group, they're, they're, they don't have the, the, the experience to make decisions to, to support everyone. And so they get it wrong and they make policies that support people that don't need it the most. And people that do need it the most are getting 
the most screwed by the decisions. So what we're trying to do is make sure that at every single aspect of the agency, we have diversity in our decision makers. It's not only on our governing council, which is appointed by the governor, we're pushing them to make sure we have diverse people, more diverse people on that. And every single level of our staffing, senior leadership, um, management level, program officer level, on our um, grant-making panels to put in policy that says at least half of the panel has to be people of color so that when we're making decisions about how grants are allocated or what programs we're going to build, we have a diverse perspective in the room. And that's kind of where I think a lot of organizations make mistakes. They really think they can educate themselves and still exclude people from the decision-making and going to come up with something that's going to fix their racism problem. It's not going to fix it. So you have to make sure the people that are in the room making the decision represent the people you're trying to serve. And that is um, the thing. We're also going to be doing a lot of relationship building and heavy recruiting for organizations that are not in our portfolios. Um, so we're hiring um, outreach coordinators who are BIPOC to actually spend time every single day finding out what organizations or artists are out there that haven't been in our portfolio and starting to build relationships with them. One of the things I want to do, and I've talked to Emily about this, is I want to go to every, every um, I keep saying delegates because we had delegates in Maryland, every legislator and say, here are all the people we fund in your district. Here's a list of all the people we don't fund because we don't have enough money. There is so much unmet need. So double, triple, quadruple my allocation. Um, and so, um, so those are the kind of things that I'm, I'm working on now. So when we named the podcast, good trouble, it was, it was that kind of trouble that we're talking about. And if you need our help and assistance to, to do that, I'm all for it. Um, you know, one of the beautiful things that I, I love in my role is that we started our artist in residence program and I made it a point to kind of think outside of the box in terms of when we selected our artists. So we did get, um, Danny Rivera, but then we turned around and we also got Willie Sanchez who goes by DJ Chubby Chubb and he's, he's 50 cents touring DJ, but he's here in Massachusetts and has been here for 20 years and has been an integral part of our, 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 our arts, uh, ecosystem. So for, as far as that stuff is concerned, if whatever assistance you need to that, sign me up. I'm all for that. That's, that's always looking for panelists. Yeah. Well, I'm always yeah. looking for panelists. Yeah. Always looking for panelists. So please send them on. Yes. Um, I, I think I, I also, if it's okay, I want to, um, loop back to something that Michael was talking about in terms of showing up and engaging. Um, and then also the other point about that bell curve, right. Um, and this is, this is something that I was very, very lucky that I had a couple of folks kind of like gently hold my hand and help explain to me because I, from where I sit and from how I move in the world and how I pass in the world, I, I have never had a lot of obstacles to engaging in policy. Right. And the policies for the most part, I benefit from. Um, and so this piece about when the policy makers do not consider your needs and you are not included in that, it, it incentivizes you from engaging in the process. And so one of the things that we're also trying to work out at mass creative is how do, how do we think about a sector that in general, right? Like lives in scarcity, right? Like the nonprofit arts community is always told like, 
you can do a lot with a very little and now try to do it. Right. Um, or, you know, Greg, your t-shirt, right? Like we'll just, we'll pay you an exposure. And so we're a sector that, um, is, is often incredibly ambitious with limited means. And so to, to some organizations and to some individuals, the added task of now we need you to write your legislators. Now we need you to engage your audiences or your networks in this conversation is like, Oh God, I don't have the time. Right. And then we're also talking about communities that don't see the benefits of um, policy development or, or policy wins. And so we're really trying to help unpack that. And also to the point, I think Reggie that you made is like, we don't need everyone to like stand in front of the state house with a sign. We need people who will write an email. We also need people who will look up when their legislator is having a coffee hour um, and we'll stop by and just say, Hey, I work in your, you know, I live and I work in your, in your district. This is the work we're doing. I don't have a need. I don't have an ask of you. I just want you to know I exist and that I'm here and I'm like making your district better, right? Like that sort of visibility piece. Um, those are all a part of that picture of advocacy and, and helping find folks, um, find their fit in this moment is something that I get most excited about. And I think mass creative is just really eager to continue to work on with partners like you all and, uh, and across Massachusetts. Yeah. When I was running arts organizations, it wasn't, it was two hours a month, maybe of doing advocacy work that was super effective and in many ways led me to this job. So, but I mean, I, it's, it's just a necessary part of running an arts organization because that's where a lot of the decisions get made that affect your organization. So to me, it's a benefit. And, and individuals as well, right? Like how do you as an individual artist or a creative entrepreneur, make sure that your lawmakers know you're, you're generating dollars in their district. They didn't know about the gig worker issue until the artist started speaking up. I mean, took a crisis for us to sort of go, Oh, wait, we, they should be getting unemployment. Just like, I mean, you know, so anyway, so all those kind of things we need, we need voices. I love that you both raised the importance of, you know, not only engaging with communities and being visible in front of legislators and, you know, in front of each other as well, because we also need to know who who's in our own backyard that we can engage with, but also how can we make sure that we're all moving in benefit of activating some of these bedroom communities where we often trickle in towards where the wealth and the resources and the institutions are really centered. And then we leave what's happening at home just kind of scarce, you know, thinking about how to demystify some of these processes and engaging with folks. Uh, to your point, Michael, about you know running arts organizations, I started doing policy work inadvertently by working at a nonprofit that uh, called the Transformative Culture Project, interviewing people. And I, to the life of me, I couldn't imagine being here talking about progressive revenue, but was interviewing Governor, well, then candidate Baker about the issue and all the other candidates to see how we can actually get more communities involved in budgeting, making it more participatory, and then also making sure that legislators understand the intricacies of the policies that they're voting on in a space where transparency is designed to not exist, no matter how hard we fight for it, no matter how much we are asking for it. Any thoughts on how, especially as we're looking at more of um, more federal resources coming in, you know, Treasury guidance has called us explicitly with the American Rescue Plan for community input. How can legislators, how can folks get more involved in making sure that the input is happening and is really reaching their needs in their communities? Yeah. So I think like this is the, this is the crux of it is that, um, unlike the opening of a show legislation moves at like 
very slowly and then with lightning quick speed, right? And so one of the things that we really try to do is we've really tried over the last year and a half to give folks a heads up and to sort of say like on the horizon, this is probably coming. So expect an email from us saying you got to act now, right? Um, and so, as and, and that's true with the American Rescue Plan Act, right? So we know that the legislature is going to um, look to hold more hearings in the fall around what this what should happen with the state dollars. And we are, you know, we're working really hard with our partners in the state house with the Mass Cultural Council to make sure that there's um, space for the arts community to engage in that, right? And to provide input. Then every single city and town in Massachusetts also received American Rescue Plan Act funding. And every single city and town in Massachusetts is going to have a different process. And so as much as possible, we're trying to alert folks when those processes begin or who to talk to or what it looks like. So again, it's top of mind because it came out yesterday. So Mayor Janey um, just announced what the first sort of tranche of um, American Rescue Plan Act dollars in Boston, what, what her plan is for that. Um, and then she also announced that she's going to be holding a number of community virtual meetings in, in, in late August and in September. So we're going to work with the Create the Vote Boston Coalition to make sure that arts and cultural supporters, I mean, it's not just about like the of the organization. It's about the board members of that organization. It's about the longtime ticket holder who like looks forward to opening up the brochure every year, reaching out and engaging in those town hall conversations or sorry, those community meetings to say like, Hey, this is a conversation about small businesses. Guess what? There are a lot of arts, small businesses. We'd really like to make sure that there's money included to ensure that they're able to recover as well. Right. So that's, a, those are a couple of the pieces. And then, um, you know, I think, I think again, it's about like, how can we quickly and effectively disseminate that information? And that's actually where we look to, we, we look to places like King Boston or to hip story or, um, enchanted circle theater, which is in Holyoke mass who are trusted, um, organizations in their communities that when they say, please send this email, or this is an opportunity for you to engage. It means so much more than if Emily, who they've never met from mass creative sends an email, right? It's like, it's going to take all of us kind of using some, spending some of that personal capital to kind of help move us forward together. Yep. Well, is it, are we the third largest industry that supports the GDP? The, the uh, yep. According to the economic bureau. Yep. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. The arts and culture supports the GDP, the third largest, but also Emily, we, there's money going to every single, a ARPA money going to every single school district. Yes. So if you want arts and culture funding in your schools, there's a chance to sort of make your voices heard. And when I was a citizen running a, a theater company, I was surprised at the number of um, legislators that responded back to the emails I sent them. So don't be afraid to call them or to email them. Most of them will respond. At least that, that's my experience. And guess what? We're going to get some of this trillion dollars um, uh, uh, infrastructure money coming as well. So there's going to be even more money coming to your, to the state and the towns. So it's time for the citizens to make sure the legislators are really working for them and the needs of their community. You just have to show up and, and, and try it a little bit and see how it feels and then do it some more. I would also want to uplift Emily's company, Mass Creative. If you sign up for her newsletters, you will get those advocacy alerts. First thing I did when I got here, literally the first email that I, uh, emailed, um, I subscribed to, and it helped me sort of understand what was happening in the state. 
The other thing um, I, I feel like I would thank you, Michael, but, and I would be remiss if I also didn't point out that we have like a really great tool at our disposal in this conversation about the American rescue plan act. Um, and this is, th- th- this is like, game-changing money coming to Massachusetts, which is why we're also focused on it. But there was actually a special commission that the legislature um, put together that both Michael and I sat on. Um, It also included uh, representatives of cultural districts um, from Provincetown, Massachusetts, and Lowell, Massachusetts, individual artists in Springfield, um, the the New England Museum Association, and the Massachusetts Educational Theater Guild, Educators Theater Guild, who um, who was theater educators in our school systems, right? We were all on that um, commission and and there was a report that was put together. And that report basically outlined just how important arts and culture is to Massachusetts, how it's been impacted by COVID-19, and then set up a series of recommendations about how the state could work to to fix that. And we literally gave it a number. We said that there needs to be 575 million in um, federal recovery dollars dedicated by Massachusetts to arts and cultural recovery. Um, 375 million of that is about directed grant programs to individual artists, um, for-profit arts organizations, nonprofit cultural organizations, and arts and cultural service organizations, right? As well as arts education or organizations and work, right? So this report, which was officially, you know, was was affirmed by the legislature. It was the co-chairs were the, uh, was um, Chair Fiola from um, Fall River. She's uh, uh, on the House side. And then Chair Kennedy from Lowell, he's on the Senate side. Um, this is a great tool that we can share with our lawmakers. And frankly, we can also share with our local decision makers to say like, look, this is how important arts and culture is to Massachusetts. This is the, this is the, the, the losses and the need for recovery. And here's a path forward to do that. And, um, you know, all of that is on our website, uh, that folks can check out and I'll send a link afterwards to you and, and, um, to you, Reggie and Greg to, to share with your, with your listeners. But, um, these are, these are like things we can't afford to, to not engage on, right? Like, having that data, going in and saying, this is what I, I want for my community. And then having the data say, and this is why it matters is such an effective and powerful thing to be able to do. It's incredible. Thank you. I'm curious as well, you know, at mass budget, we're really focused on making sure that the state budget can be a tool for anti-racist policymaking and making the Commonwealth a place where economic security is guaranteed for everyone and that, you know, we are really able to make inclusive democracy something that is attainable in our lifetimes, if not sooner. I'm curious, you know, with the calls for cancellation of student debt and invest in the divest language, as we talk about the arts and culture sector and recovery, what what are some form of reparations for artists and creative entrepreneurs and folks who have been left out of the conversation? How can we get uh, more support out of, you know, the 575 million that you just mentioned actually into these communities uh, in a way that they can really help, I'd say, speed up, expedite their pandemic recovery. Yeah. It's a real, it's a really good question. I know the word reparations is charged. Um, and I've been actually following the Evanstown, um, uh, work they did the first sort of city to, to create a reparations budget. And the question is for me is, does the money go into direct cash payments, which a lot of the citizens of Evanstown were advocating for, or does it go into corrective programming to sort of start fixing some of the inequities? And that's kind of what I think this racial equity plan that we're building will speak to is how can we invest in historically marginalized communities that help them become stronger 
organizations and individuals. Uh, so we're sort of working that out right now. And hopefully when we launch our racial equity plan, people will see what our thinking is around that. Yeah, I think it's right. Like, um, you know, from our perspective, it's like when the, when the legislation is written, what are the priorities for those, for those dollars? And, and what is the, what are the gar guardrails that are put in to direct an agency like Michael's, um, about how to distribute those dollars. So a great example of that I think is, um, so Senator Kennedy at the beginning of the session, which started in January of this year, filed a bill that would create a minimum, uh, sorry, create a, a recovery fund for arts and culture that at a minimum had $200 million of federal relief dollars going into that. And specifically within it, it said that the, the agency that would distribute that was the Mass Cultural Council, but specifically said it needed to take into consideration um, the diversity of, of, of around gender, around race, around um, geography, around art form, and then also the economic impact, right? Of, and so I think that those are, um, those are, those are sort of small, but very impactful ways of, of telegraphing and actually directing how those dollars are distributed. Right. And so, um, I think that that's not about, that's not like systems change, but that is about like, how do we, how do we continue to look at that balance? And we also got an earmark that was sponsored by the House um, Asian Caucus to direct a million dollars to the AAPI community. Um, so that, so I'm excited about that. And Mass Cultural Council will be um, um, allocating those dollars. And I hope that will be a blueprint for other affinity groups within the legislature to look at to see if we can continue doing that kind of work over the years. Trying to get a meeting with a couple of other caucuses to sort of suggest they look at that, that work. Reggie, I also like one of the things that I really like about the Mass Policy Budget Center, right, is how your work to help people unpack that budget and to identify where those streams of money are going to. And I, I know it is, you know, a, a, another item on the task list, but I, um, I actually find it really important to go through those budgets and also take a look at, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily funding for arts and culture in this in the state's budget primarily happens through the Mass Cultural Council annual allocation, and that's where we put enormous amount of energy. But if you go through that budget, there are other dollars that are going to specific organizations or to specific um, arts and cultural related like fields. And I think more of us need to take a look at that um, and really think about how are we how are we uniting together to make sure that public dollars for arts and culture are being distributed in a way that addresses um, the diversity and the breadth and depth of the sector across Massachusetts. Thank you for that, Emily. You know, uh, we always say that mud budgets are moral documents at mass budget. Yeah. And the work of our morality and, you know, uh, the will to really and the political courage to be able to make sure that we're making investments and that we're we're spending equitably and making communities whole that have been really left on the sidelines for far too long can only help us, you know, ensure our recovery from the pandemic and make sure that the future is equitable and bright and well resourced and healthy for all of our communities across the Commonwealth. It can happen.
as we as we look at Massachusetts, and I think you you two might be the perfect people to answer this question. Um, we're going to go on the I, road with our show, and we're going to wear sequin like outfits I, and top hats. I just wanted a cooking show where I would like make a meal with with a legislator or with you, Michael, and then we'd like a good idea. No, that's time. a really good idea. As long as you don't, as long as you don't forget me and Reggie, because I mean, seeing as you, seeing as a spark for this great idea yeah. happened here on our show, yeah. you know, we, we'll work, we'll work the paperwork out later. Um, but I, the question I had was, with both of you all having a statewide view, um, where, where in the state of Massachusetts do you think? potentially could be the next great art center. I know that in, in many other in many other states, in a few cities, you know, like in, in Brooklyn, you have Bushwick, um, in, in the Bushwick Collective and the things that they've done there. In 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 uh Miami you have um what is it, Linwood, uh Winwood rather, you have all these spaces that have actually made there's been a concerted effort to pour arts into those spaces. Where are some of those spaces in Massachusetts? I mean I've been feeling like we have one of those spots in, in Hyde Park here in, in, in Boston. Um, I feel like Worcester is right for, for that kind of re revitalization as well. Um, where do you think we can create those kind of spaces for art, for the arts here in, in, um, in Massachusetts? I'll give you the political answer. One, I've only lived here for two years and most of my time here has been stuck inside. So I'm just getting out to meet all these neighborhoods. Um, and then you're sort of asking me to split my babies because they're all my babies now. So I can't really pick favorites, but I, I honestly think it really is based on the community's desire and wishes. Artists and art can happen anywhere. And if a community and those local legislators decide they want more art in that community, any space in this commonwealth can become a major hub for arts and culture. I mean, it's no mistake that people are driving or flying from miles around to get to the Brookshires. Yep. So you can really decide if you want this, if you want your community to be a destination for arts and culture, then make that decision and put some policy and some money behind it. And it can happen. I've seen, you know, I grew up in DC and there was a, a street corner called 14th and P street where there were lots of um, people that, did, I don't know, kinds of things on the street corner and sold lots of things on the street corner. And a friend of mine decided to buy a warehouse that was there and turn it into a theater. And then about 10 years later, that, that community, that corner had a, had a whole foods and some of the best restaurants and retail that you could ever imagine. It was, a, I mean, some people call it gentrification, but a lot of it was about deciding that is where they wanted to make an arts hub and it became this fantastic arts hub. And now there are like three or four theaters and music groups and concert halls and clubs and everything. So it just, it, it just requires a dream and a vision. Yeah. And, and I, I will point out some, some really, some really great examples and some best practices and some models that I think are, are, are places to take inspiration. So, um, new Bedford, right. In the South shore. They have done a, a phenomenal job of coordinating and uniting as a sector, and then also um, having citizens and city leadership sort of identify and say that this is an important part, arts and culture, are an important part of what New Bedford is, right? And they continue to broaden what that definition of arts and culture is. And so I think that the a level of coordination between the city and the arts community and the and the citizens and the excuse me the residents of New Bedford is a great model to take a look at. Um, I would also say that like Provincetown, Massachusetts, 
is one of the first arts colonies, I think, in the country, right? And so his like that's a that's a, a look back, but like we've been in the business of creating arts meccas for for generations in Massachusetts, except we don't talk about them a lot. Um, and so, you know, I think so. So New Bedford, I also want to call out Provincetown because I think the way that art and culture are woven into that community and how that is has um, really helped people live into who they really are um, is a great example. Then on the North Shore, you know, Salem is a, a town that already sort of has this unbelievable tourism draw, right? because of a tragedy. Um, but they also support their arts and creativity in ways that are, are really fantastic. Um, and specifically the North shore CDC community, the North shore community development corporation that's up in the point, which is a neighborhood, the Punto, which is a neighborhood in Salem created the Punto urban art museum, which is they commissioned a series of murals on the sides of their buildings. Um, the, the buildings that they own, right. As a community development corporation. And um, the, the, the point is a neighborhood, it's, it's um, heavily Latinx, um, and it has a, a bad reputation in Salem. And so they use that as an, a means of intervention to change not only the reputation of the point in Salem, but also change the, the, the visibility of the community who lived there. And they didn't just paint murals on the sides of their buildings. They then threw a city, or excuse me, a, a neighborhood festival where residents in that neighborhood could sell food, could sell um, art and creations that they they've made. And so they activated that space with art for, for real, um, community cohesion. And I would say creative place keeping, not creative place making. Right. Um, and so that's an example that I think we should really lift up. You mentioned Worcester. Worcester has long been at the forefront of this with the Worcester cultural coalition, and they have, um, a, a cultural development officer within city hall, but they also have a city manager who consistently prioritizes arts and culture, um, when, when they are making budgets and when they are talking about plans for spending, um, and they are thinking as a, as a, as a coalition about the city and how arts and culture can transform that city and continue to advance it forward. Um, those are just a couple of examples that I really love to talk about because they also demonstrate that it's not just, you don't have to just be an extremely affluent city or um, you don't have to be a gateway city in order to use art, to embrace art as a means of um, change and as a means of um, igniting something different in your community. And there are some grants out there. So, so one, if there are communities and neighborhoods out there that want to become a cultural destination, um, we can help you. So if we want to, my community's team would be happy to sort of bring you together and help you convene with your key stakeholders in your town and talk about the benefits of it and how you get started. But there are also some grants out there in other state agencies and a little bit in mass cultural council through our cultural districts program where we can help you sort of figure out how to build that. But it really just takes one person to have the idea and then to start collective impact and convene people to make something like that happen. Great. Thank you. It sounds like we got our homework. We, right. We I'm just going to ask how can folks stay in touch with both Mass Creative and the Mass Cultural Council. If we could just get your handles or your website for listeners so they can reach out. Sure. So Mass Creative's website is www.mass- creative c-r-e-a-t-i-v-e dot org <laughs> 
Um, and if you go there, there's a treasure trove of data and information and also a place where you can sign up to get our emails. Um, we're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook um, as at Mass Creative, no hyphen. Um, and yeah, and and all of my teams, I'm not, it's, I'm not a one-person shop. Our, our whole team's um, contact information is also on our website if you want to get in touch with us directly. Same, the uh, massculturalcouncil.org, massculturalcouncil.org is the website, not Massachusetts Cultural Council, massculturalcouncil.org. And all of our emails are on the website. But if people want to reach out to me personally, Instagram is probably the best, which is Michael James Bobbitt is my Instagram handle. And I would love to hear from people. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. You know, I, I feel like I, I'm, I've been... I've gotten a, a lot of great information poured into me that I'm ready to go out and put to good use. What about you, Reggie? Look, I'm excited to make sure that those five letters are getting into everyone's hands so we can get uh, these resources where they need to go. So thank you for this incredible update. And we look forward to staying in touch with all of the work. Hey, we'll, we'll plan another meeting to produce the Emily and Michael show. Yeah, you can be our first guest. <laughs> <laughs> and I would appreciate joining that show. That sounds like a good time. Uh, thank you for creating this space to talk about the intersection of policy in our lives. And thank you for the great conversation. I'm, I'm leaving more energized for our work. So thank you for that. Same here. I'm, I'm, I love the work that you both are doing. So we're looking forward to amplifying this when you put it out there. Thank you. Thank you so much. And it, like I said, it just means we have to get into a lot more good trouble together in the future. And uh, that's something that I am absolutely looking forward to. So thank you again for joining us. 